You're listening to Talk and Driver, the truck podcast. Right, well, back for the first um, Talk and Driver podcast of 2019. Um, Dougie Rankin, editor of Truck and Driver. And I'm here today with Peter Simons, industry consultant working for manufacturers, dealers and operators. And also uh, a previous employee of DAF and Leyland DAF from 1979 to 1992. Is that right? That's correct. Yep. So uh, we're just in today to have a chat about what's been happening over the past few weeks in the industry in general, what we've been up to in Truck and Driver, and also to... um, interrogate Peter for some information. Um, Don't like the word interrogation there, Dougie. Yeah, um, to get some some stories, some feedback uh, about the DAF projects and the trucks from the 70s, 80s and 90s, your 3300s, 95s and even the um, Ford and Alpha, which um, I believe you were involved in naming. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) So, I mean, basically, um, it's... Well, first week back at work, we're kind of halfway through putting together the first issue of the year. Um, somebody asked me, is it, why don't you report on Brexit in the magazine? And I'm like, because things move far too fast. Far too I'm, fast. I'm, I'm Indeed they do. And the trouble is your own opinions get involved with it as well, don't they? Inevitably. You know, if you think it's a good thing, uh, if you think Brexit's a good thing, you're going to say this is all project fear and there's not going to be a problem. If you think Brexit's a bad thing, you're going to create it into all kinds of problems. But I think... Divorce yourself for one second from your own personal views. There is no doubt that Brexit produces a real challenge for our industry, as anybody, particularly drivers in the real world, know uh, for themselves. And, um, you know, whether if it's a no-deal like Brexit, it's going to be a nightmare. Yeah, it does. It makes my uh, brain hot thinking about it. Anybody who used to go out uh, out of the UK with a truck prior to 1992, when the doors really opened to Europe, remembers well things, carnets and sort of foot-deep paperwork that we had to take with us to go through borders. The amount of time we had to stop at every single border that we went through. I remember it myself. I did a run to Romania uh, back in 1990. And, and it was... You know, literally, you would allow half a day at every border crossing just to get through, and I can see those days returning. What was it? I mean, it was a Romanian thing for because um, there was like the fall of the fall of the Iron Curtain round about then, wasn't there? Yeah, Romanian, the Iron Curtain. Yeah, the 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 wall fell uh, the late eighties, and believe it? it or not, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, I was a DAF employee at the time. We sponsored a wonderful television series called Challenge Annika. And everybody will remember Annika Rice's backside um, bouncing around our TV screens. We lent her a 95 uh, tractor unit in those days, light blue, and uh, she used to do off, go off and do great works. One of the things, perhaps the biggest challenge that she was given was to do up a, an orphanage in Romania. And uh, we had a convoy of about 14 trucks taking equipment out for the guys who, who did that work. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I remember a lot of the time there were a lot of convoys going out with aid to Romania. That's right. It was such a, That's right. A terrible situation out there at the time. Not nice. No. Now, regards, you'd mentioned, well, before we'd started recording, you'd mentioned you were wanting to get into work with HMV at the time, but trucks kind of came first. Yeah, yeah, no, I... So I have you I, always I, been interested in trucks growing up? What did you, so my what parents did you do tell me, I, I, I mean, I, I was interested in trucks in the very early days, but I have to say my real... Passion started when I came out of school in the late, uh, mid-late 70s 
And uh, I, you know, my father said to me, well, you get a job, boyo, before university. By all means, have a year off, but get a job. Uh, and I started working on the shop floor, got bored with that very quickly, working on a machine. So started driving a BMC 440 EA van around London. And from that, I caught the bug. And uh, I've never left it alone. A B I'm trying to visualise what that van would be like. Has that yeah. like got a sliding door on it? No, no, that was an ones, FG no. with what we used to call suicide doors. The doors would open front ways mm -hmm. and you'd, you'd sort of slide out the side. Now, this was uh, a BMC van just prior to the formation. It was on an H plate first time round. Ghastly old thing. Give me the codes on that. I'm going to have to go and find a picture it of it. It's a BMC 440EA. The post office used to run an awful lot of them. Um, Royal Mail used to run a lot of them. And this was in dark green with an extended body at the back. And it was great. Once you got this diesel engine started, it took 20 minutes to start it with an awful lot of accompanying smoke. But once it got started, you knew it would keep going. The engine was under floor. Uh, it, brilliant thing. Absolutely brilliant. Loved it. Top speed of 44 miles an hour. And uh, you, it was so noisy, the sides vibrated so much, there was no point in putting a radio in it because you couldn't hear it. <laughs> Brilliant. Drove it around London, and um, the rest is history. Was, that, was Daft the first place that you... Yeah, I did a business degree at university mm -hmm. and had to get uh, a placement for a year, well, two six-month periods within my degree. Daft, happily, were just starting up in the UK, really, in those days. Been going about three or four years. They were in Marlow, not far from where I live. And uh, I wrote to them saying, I've just got myself an HGV, uh, a class one. Um, can I come to work for you as a student? Did you do six that? Months. And you that's do that what I did. Back. Yeah, you I got, I got my own HGV. When, you know, literally sort of about 20 days after I was 21 years old uh, with a D-series tractor unit with a spread axle uh, spread axle, um, single axle trailer. And I started with DAF uh, for six months in early 77. I did six months with them then, six months in 78. And I joined them full time on the 1st of October 79. Because that was, DAF was a very different company than the one that we know today. They were like the independent very different, Dutch very manufacturer. Different. In fact, they weren't totally independent in those days. In fact, there, there was uh, a tie up with International Harvester just prior to that, uh, International Harvester, the American brand, had got in, into bed with DAF. But that had come to an end, and uh, DAF were once again independent. They'd already sold the car division to Volvo, so the famous DAF car range, which is a lot better than anybody thinks, by the way. I drove one last year. Did you? Uh, at the DAF 90th birthday celebrations, yeah, I went out and drove one, and it's got the... Um Continuously variable CVT, absolutely gearbox, variable transmission. Couldn't have been any easier to drive, really. I thought it was. Well, the original Daft brothers were the two Van Dorne brothers. They started the company in 1928, as you know, and uh, they were engineers. Certainly, Hub Van Dorne was an engineer, uh, a brilliant engineer, absolutely brilliant. And some of the things that they came up with, even in the late 20s, quite amazing. Uh, his uh, his brother Wim was more the businessman. Um, but uh, the, the, by the time I joined, it was an independent company once again. Uh, the 2800 had been out for probably around about three to four years by the time I got there. Uh, we were selling uh, supercontinentals, uh, supercontinental versions of the 2800 DKS to companies like PIE Transport. They used to operate out of Feltham near the airport doing Middle East. 
uh, and a company called Concord Express, those those kind of guys. So there were other companies doing the Middle East apart from Astran. Mm -hmm. What was What's a, a supercontinental 2800? Because obviously right. that was the 2800 was the kind of first of that line of iconic Indeed. daft trucks with the Indeed. black grill, the twin headlights. The, these are ones that people still remember enormously fondly today. Indeed, the 2800 really took over from the 2600 range. And we really imported two versions of the 2800 to the UK. One was the 2800 DKS, which is 307 horsepower. One was the 2800 DKTD, which was uh, around about 260, if I remember right. Um, the, two, the, 20, the 2800 DKTD was really the sort of fleet motor. It was very much run by some of the bigger transport operators around the UK in those days, amongst you know people like BRS and so on. But the DKS was really the uh, top fleet owner-driver kind of machine and very, very popular. But the Supercontinental was a special variant of it. Um, what we did was we would strip out the sleeper pod from the uh, 2800. We would replace it with a pod built by a company down in, oh, down in the West Country somewhere, Devon Conversions, I think they were called. And that pod had within it a cooker, a sink, uh, running hot and cold water, uh, air conditioning, all kinds of other bits and bobs with a bunk on the top. Um, PIE, who were doing uh, Middle East transport, as I say, out of uh, Feltham, their fleet engineer, Mike Guy, was very involved in it. I'm sure he's long retired now. But uh, they had a bunk on top, very comfortable, very simple. But for doing the Middle East in those days, they really were top of the range. Yeah, that's... I've never seen a supercontinental version before, and I wonder if any of them have survived. I, I think it would be unlikely, because I think we only ever built around about 70 of them in total. Most of those went to PIE. Quite a few went to Concord Express, who were also by Heathrow Airport. One was built for um, the fledgling BRS Overland uh, organisation, that had decided to get into the Middle East boom as well, um, part of which was involved with the, you know, one of which went out on the uh, the famous Astram film. But at the at, there was a story behind that one. It was brilliant. We did a special one-off for BRS Overland. It was left-hand drive, this. Most of them were right-hand drive. But this left-hand drive one, we'd, we got the driver down. He, uh, I'm not going to spare his blushes here. We got the driver down. We did a two-day training course with him on how to get the best out of his vehicle, how to live with it when he was out in, in places far flung from the UK. And uh, he shook us warmly by the hand, drove it away, and had, um, had an accident within 300 yards of Daft's Marlow premises. So he bought it back, slightly red-faced, poor bugger. We felt very sorry for him. But uh, effectively, it went down very well. It was ORD 996R. For anybody who remembers it, well, there's probably a picture of it somewhere on the internet. Sure, but, there um, is. I mean, obviously, the 3300 was probably, I mean, out of you've got the 2800, 3300, 3600, which were your full weight versions. It's the 3300 that seems to be the most iconic of them all. It's the one that's most fondly remembered. Um, yeah, there is the, there's a story behind that, Diggy. As I say, in the late 70s, early 80s, really Daft ran with the two. Uh, versions of the 2800. There was the 2800 DKS, the 2800 DKTD, and a third version, which was introduced early 1980, called the 2800 DKSE, 
which was effectively a derated DKS to give higher levels of economy. We're focusing on high levels of torque as opposed to power because torque, as we all know, is far more important in terms of making a vehicle perform than power. It was in the around about 82 that with the trend towards, gradual trend towards higher powers, we introduced something called a 3300, and that was the 3300 DKX. That was about 330 horsepower, not surprisingly. And I remember going to the uh, training and the launch of the 3300 over in Eindhoven, and the guy who did the introduction said, you will never see a more powerful DAF than this. I remember him saying it. I remember thinking at the time, I'll believe that when I see it. But the 3300 DKX came in of its own volition in around about 82. It was only after that that models such as the 3600 started to arrive. And there's a story behind that. We uh, were aware by then that obviously what ultimately was the 95 today, the XF, was already en route. It was due originally to be launched probably around about 85, 86. But by about 83, 84, it was becoming obvious that, you know, inevitable production delays, design delays and homologation and so on, we weren't going to see that product until around about 87. That meant that we as uh, a manufacturer, particularly in, in the UK, because we were doing high numbers of 2800s and 33s by then, we were worried that the delay was going to, in particular, impact the margins we were going to make from that product. So we, in cohorts with a number of other DAF subsidiaries across Europe, went to Eindhoven and said, look, you've got to give us something to keep the product going mm -hmm. until such time as the 95, the new product, NTG as we called it, new truck generation, was going to be ready in 87. And all credit to the Dutch, they came back to us in uh, 84 and said, okay, we're going to give you two programs. One was called PTG1, the second one was called PTG2. PTG1, present truck generation one, present truck generation two. PTG1 was purely the launch of Space Cab. PTG1 was purely the launch of Space Cab onto the existing F241 cab, which was 283300. PT, and that came out really about late eight, mid late 84 it was very much to compete with volvo globetrotter to compete with uh, other makes that had also gone down the you know the the uh, mercedes uh, big cab and all that sort of thing that had, was, were beginning to make their way onto the market ptg2 came out in 1985 and effectively at the heart of ptg2 was the driveline improvements, the engine, gearbox, rear axle improvements that were due originally to be launched with what became the 95. Now, those were uh, tweaks to the engine. They were uh, single reduction rear axle or a one-to-one -one driveline as opposed, so a thoroughbred driveline as opposed to a more simple variant of it as we were using at that day. The result was better economy and so on and so forth. We um, early we knew that was going to come in in the autumn of 1985, but that too presented us with a quandary because there was no change to the look of the product. We were new within that that we were going to get higher power, 
hence the 3600. But we knew also that the two other variants, the 3300, were gonna, was going to be improved, as was the 2800. We said, listen, guys, that's all very well introducing a new product, but you'll be introducing something that when it drives past you on the road, you won't know it's a new one or an old one, so it won't look any different. I remember we were called to a marketing manager's meeting in Brussels Airport on Good Friday in 1985 to confront the problem. And we came up with a concept of uh, coming up with a badging, a monomic. In those days, one of the biggest things that was going on in the car world was, as a good example, GTI. Labels were what the world was all about. Yep. Ralph Lauren was launching <laughs> shirts with his label on. Uh, Gucci were launching belts with their big G on and all this kind of rubbish. We thought, well, in the car world, the biggest thing is GTI. When somebody says to you, what car do you drive? And you say, I've got a GTI, you knew it was a Golf. We said, why not come up with something that uh, resembles the benefits that this new driveline will give us on this product? So we went away, thought about it. Uh, I put together a paper suggesting that we should uh, uh, come up with uh, putting a rationale behind this proposal and suggesting that the story behind this, which was the second generation of turbo intercooling, DAF were the first manufacturer ever to introduce turbo intercooling, but this was effectively the second generation of turbo intercooling, gave us an opportunity to put together a story based on advanced turbo intercooling. Uh, I suggested this, we suggested this as a group to, to Eindhoven Management, and damn me, they accepted it. And uh, I have to say, the day that I got the call to say that the ATI letters that we'd suggested uh, were going to be accepted and that was going to be the platform, wow, it was worth a year's salary to me. Well, it's, good. it's quite a sporty badge as well because it was red, it was. wasn't it? Yeah. It was. We've got, actually, we've got a guy, there's a picture of a truck in the current issue, a trucking driver, he's got an 85 CF and he's badged it up on the front, 3,800 Turbo ATI, ATI. No. <laughs> yeah. No, ATI, I have to say, was, was great fun. Um, you know, I'm very proud of my involvement and con contribution to that. Uh, it's a bit of a claim to fame, but it, it certainly set the scene for a lot of other things. I think the unique thing about ATI is that badging, that sort of market platform, if you like, was only supposed to last with the existing 36, 33 and 2800 ranges but it was so well accepted in the marketplace that it survived a huge amount longer. But as I say, the core component of the ATI range was the 3600, the 3300, and the 2800 ranges. Yeah, I mean, I, when I, 1985, I, I was in primary two at school. Thanks. <laughs> but I remember um, when I was growing up, when you're like at primary school, when you're a little kid, you would, if you're interested in vehicles and trucks, you would, I would notice them going up and down the road, and I wouldn't have any like background knowledge of what they were. Of course. But I could understand looking at certain models of truck, and as like a five, six-year-old, I would understand that a 3300 ATI was obviously something a bit special. And yep. I remember I saved up money for quite a long time to get a Corgi super hauler model. Good boy. <laughs> it was a wagon and drag. Um, daft and I, I've wrecked it. With, I found the, I could find the trailer when we emptied my parents' loft a couple of years ago. <laughs> I could find the trailer and I can't find the front of the bloody truck, but I'd like used it that much on the pavements and everything. I'd bent the axles in it and it was just trashed, but I, I went looking for it and I couldn't find it again. But 
That Certainly, I've got one around still. We 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 had a load that? of them. Uh, what that that particular model, like that Corgi one. It was ten, it was a tenner in my pocket money. It was a pound a week. Oh, so I, I lived down south, so it was probably twenty quid for yeah, where we'd I, I saved I saved up for a while, and I think I think um, I think my mum must have taken sympathy on me and like put in the last few quid to go and get the thing because it was uh, I'd had my eyes on it for ages. But that was if marketing must have done something right if you could tell that you know that six year olds. Could exactly, tell that, exactly. that I could tell that a truck had something a bit more about it because I remembered them Scania 142s and you'd have like the Volvos with the Globetrotter cab. I remembered them and ERF E14s. That was the other one that I remember. I've got no recollection of Foden's or anything that much back then. Yeah, and and you know, I, I forgive me, my career has been focused on product marketing. It's a very misunderstood science. You know, people, there is no doubt when I first came into the industry, uh, trucks were purely technical products. And the people you sold to in those days as a manufacturer and a dealer were fleet engineers. Mm -hmm. Today, the concept of a fleet engineer is, is pretty much gone. That's not to say it has gone completely. Depends on who the fleet are. But in those days, when I first came into the industry, I, I remember standing on a stand at the 1980 Motor Show and this, I was standing by uh, a 2800 DKSE, our new product for the show. And I remember uh, uh, some old guy coming on the stand and saying, so then this, this product's new, is it? And I said, yeah, it's the, the latest version of our engine and uh, economy and blah, blah, blah. And he said, can I have a Cummins engine in your truck? And I said, no. And he said, well, why not? He said, Leyland will do me a Cummins or a Rolls or a Gardner or a whatever I want or a Leyland engine. Why won't you? Well, because we make engines. Why would we want to sell anybody else's engine? You know, at the end of the day, we know what we're doing. And uh, then he gave me his business card, and it was an old boy called Harry Townley, who was chief engineer of the ESSO at the time. So I remember putting my foot in it on that one slightly. Uh, <laughs> I think we did do some trucks to ESSO, but, but not many. <laughs> Well, you could, if he was wanting a Cummins engine, there wouldn't have been much you could do, have done about it anyway, yeah, if he was dead set on. Ab absolutely. I mean, the, the bizarre thing is, if you go back sort of 30 years ago, truck manufacturers would, would talk to you as the customer and say, what, you know, tell us what truck you want us to build. What axle do you want? What gearbox do you want? What engine make do you want? We, the, you know, they, they were integrated in a different way. It was people like DAF. Volvo, Scania, Mercedes-Benz, who came in in the mid-70s, um, to give or take, who said, look, we have confidence in the products that we build. We build our own engines. By and large, we build our own back axles. Some of us build our own gearboxes. The only proprietary component really on a DAF when I joined the company was the gearbox. And you can have usually the gearbox that we told you you were going to have, but you might have a choice of a second one. It was either a Fuller box or a ZF box. Mm -hmm. Aye. And, and it was a different approach. You know, these days, there is a slight sort of movement back towards where we were in those days, except to say, nowadays, you can have a choice as to six different types of cab, for example, two or three different gearboxes, two or three different back axles on a particular product. But by God, we, that manufacturer, will build that particular item for you. If you came along and said, well, I want a cat engine on a... Volvo FH, no, why would we do that? We make Volvos. They have Volvo engines. Why on earth would we look at anybody else's? Yeah, the, pro the proprietary engine um, thing really went out 
well, it did go out at Euro 3, didn't it? With it did. Um, it did. the it end did. of um, Foden and um, ERF because um, they couldn't justify uh, engineering the emissions controls to those engines for Correct. the volumes that they were doing. And it was, was largely like driven out by, by legislation. You know, if you think about it, Cummins were at one time an enormous truck engine supplier to people like ERF and Foden for starters. Um, also for Leyland towards the end of their days. But, you know, their day has been and gone in really in truck engines, big truck engines, still very important, don't get me wrong, still very important in medium to smaller size trucks here in the UK. And buses as well, they do a lot of bus buses engines. Too. Mm -hmm. Buses too, exactly. But no, the DAF, the, uh, the 28, 33 and 3600 ranges were iconic. They very much uh, set the scene for the DAF brand here in the UK. And, uh, you know, it was, it was fascinating being a part of the company during that period and particularly being very closely involved in the merger of DAF and Leyland uh, in uh, 87, 80, well, really 87, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I, um, obviously DAF went and rebuilt um, a 3300 um, to use for the 90th anniversary last year. And you can see how iconic the truck is by the reaction that it got because it has been publicised everywhere. And I've asked questions about it in social media and there's people come back and said that is like the greatest truck DAF has ever built. Um, you know, I would have one back tomorrow and there was a, every journalist under the sun, I think, had a shot of it at some point or another. And they say, yeah. that's not... Uh, you've made the point to me beforehand that it's not really a 3300, though. In no, the it, it, In the conventional sense. It is not. And there's several reasons why, and there's several, reasons, there's several ways you can tell. Um, again, there's a bit of a story behind it, forgive me. Um, when we launched the 95 in 1987, uh, we were doing very well in terms of sales volume in tractors. And... It happened to coincide, the launch of the 95 happened to coincide with the merger of DAF and Leyland. It also happened to coincide with the beginnings of worries about the economy and so on and so forth. There wasn't quite a recession yet, but enormous change was really the order of the day at DAF at that time. On the back of which we introduced a brand new product, brand new product. I mean, it really was, it wasn't an upgrade, it was a brand new product. Inevitably, as with any brand new product, there were teething troubles. And those teething troubles with the 95 did manifest themselves quite quickly, with the result that an awful lot of operators were disappointed with the product that we, as staff, were putting out uh, in those early days. As a result, our sales volume on tractors, particularly three-axle tractors, six-per-two twin steers and so on, reduced quite, were well, hit quite significantly. So much so that uh, our lords and masters in Eindhoven said, this is not good news, our cash flows are not looking too good, we'd better reintroduce, reintroduce the um, 283,300 ranges so that you can go back to your traditional operators who were all saying, oh, give us the old product back because it was much better and blah, 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 blah. Sorry, all, some of whom were saying, give us the old product back um, and we'll give it a facelift so that we can reintroduce it. I have to say, as product marketing manager of DAF at the time, I fought very hard against reintroducing what were actually known as the 2900, the 3200 ranges for the UK. There weren't, there weren't many of them. And there were sold. very few of them that's introduced. A, uh, that's correct. 
I, in fact, made rather a nuisance of myself about it, so much so that I had a phone call from the chairman of DAF, a chap called Corban, who said, ah, oh, Mr. Simons, you, you seem a little bit upset about this. And I said, well, Mr. Barnes, this is crazy. It's rather like Ford reintroducing the, Sierra, reintroducing the Cortina after the Sierra has been out for a couple of years. Yeah, it doesn't seem like a, a, a logical sensible policy because Precisely. you're basically saying that the new ones... Precisely. You, you, it, know, you know, it shows like enough. a confidence in your <laughs> yeah. new product and so on. And he said, uh, watch my lips. We are reintroducing the 29 and 3200. I get your picture, Mr. Barnt. Thank you. Good night. Um, so the 29 and 3200s were reintroduced here to the UK. At the same time, they were given a facelift, i.e. the slatted grille that you saw on that uh, version that you drove on that 3300. The 3300 itself continued mainly for export markets and for military applications. At the same time, the 29, 32 and that 33 and indeed the th remaining 3600 got a facelift externally and the colour scheme and the materials that have been launched with the new 95. And that product that you drove the other day was one of those products. Yeah, because that truck was originally, um, that was um, bought for a military order because so they, they needed trucks in a hurry and then it ended up, it went away to, might have been Somalia and then it ended up in Kosovo and then it came back. And then that, there was actually a few, a few of them. There must be another couple of them out there somewhere stored away in somebody's yeah. barn. <clears throat> as I say, for us as a mainstream product here in the UK, that product you tested was not one of those. It was an oddball. Yes, it was representative of where, it where we were, but bear in mind for the UK market, we stopped building 3300s in 1987. That particular one you drove, I think, was built in 1990? Yeah, around the, the registration plate in Ireland was 1993. Oh, well, so there was you on go. But we understand it was stood up for a bit before it was registered first off, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, it's a really... The whole history of it from start to right up until now is really unusual yeah. um, from it. Yeah. But it was, it was, it was a very confusing time. Um, my very good friend and colleague, Tony Payne, who recently retired as marketing director of DAF, um, he was the Leyland man in 1987, the market, product marketing man for Leyland in 1987. I was the product marketing man for DAF in 1987. And um, uh, he and I did all the groundwork on the product range that came together for the initial Leyland Is this DAF. like the combined Leyland DAF ranges where you had like the, the, well const the, the constructor cab trucks as well as the 95? Correct. We, we were, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, it's another story in itself completely. But uh, we were called, my, the, the managing director of DAF at the time, Chuck called Roger Phillips, he and I were called to a meeting unbeknownst to us, completely out of the blue, at an airport hotel at Heathrow in late 1986. And at that time, uh, it was to meet with the management team of Leyland Trucks to see whether there was any synergies that we could achieve by bringing the brands together. Uh, Tony and I were sort of the young thrusters, if you like, uh, doing all you know, this sort of legwork. And what was really fascinating was uh, the top brass said to us as two young lads, right, fellas, you've got two hours, go off into a hotel, another hotel room, and you've got two hours to come back with a market forecast for the UK for the next five years. What you think we, as a combined Leyland DAF, could do 
in, that mar in those markets for the next five years and what products you need to do that. So how did the um, Leyland DAF kind of merger come about? Because DAF encountered financial difficulties. Uh, it was long before then. It was long before then, Doogie. What happened was, effectively, DAF was a fairly healthy, thriving company, uh, you know, a, a sort of extended family business, if you like, throughout the sort of early and mid-80s. Leyland, at that time, was owned by the British government. It was one of the last remnants of the Leyland Group that had been created in the late 70s. There had been a huge amount of public investment in Leyland trucks. Uh, for example, Leyland Assembly Plant up at, up at Leyland had been built on the back of that public money. And, and they'd come out with a new T45 range from road train right the way down to through cruiser, lightweight cruiser, freighter, right the way down to Roadrunner. And they had an exceptionally good product range by then. Certainly the Roadrunner was well ahead of its time in terms of being a light truck. And uh, But at the end of the day, the government, the Tory government at that time, Mrs Thatcher's government at that time, wanted rid of nationalised industries. And they wanted rid of Leyland Trucks as part of that. They'd already held talks with various other manufacturers various other brands in terms of getting rid of Leyland trucks. Those have come to nothing. And because of the links with DAF, firstly, DAF historically had always fitted uh, development of Leyland engines. Secondly, in the mid-80s, DAF had taken the Roadrunner and the Freight Rover van range and launched them on mainland Europe as DAF products. I don't know if you're aware of that. No, I didn't know that. The, yeah, no, the, the old Sherpa van. Yeah, the Sherpa van, let's not go there. The old <laughs> Sherpa van was the DAF 200 and 400, and the old um, uh, Roadrunner became the DAF 800, 1000, and 1200. Right. And got that you. had happened in around about 1985. It was a project known as DDV, DAF Delivery Vehicles, and we had literally bought those products from Leyland. They didn't come to the UK because otherwise they'd be competing with Leyland products, but on the continent, so in Holland, France, Belgium, Germany, etc., they they did relatively well. But it was those kind of links that enabled us to be a, or enabled DAF to be a prime candidate to get together with Leyland Trucks when Mrs. Thatcher decided she wanted to divest herself of of the company in the late 80s. It was a merger, more than one taking over the other, would you say? Yes. Yes. <laughs> no. Yes. No. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Difficult question to answer. Certainly, yes, it, effectively, it, it was a merger. It was two very different companies. Um, DAF effectively took over ownership of Leyland Trucks, but in reality, the operations were a merger. You have to remember I'm saying this from the point of view of being an old Daft Trucks employee as opposed to being a Leyland employee. It was it was tough times. It's not easy to bring together two brands who've always been competitors, stick them all in the same room and uh, uh, say, right, fellas, you're going to like each other. One of the things that I liken it to, it's rather like if you're father dies and your mother gets remarried to a man whose kids you don't like and you don't want to be with them but by god they've got some great toys to play with <laughs> that's a very good analogy um but of course the um 
the Leyland Daff um, company as it was once it had got together like that didn't last for all that long either before Packard stepped in. Was that 1992? No, no. I, again, forgive me, I, I need no. to sort no. of put it in historical context. We got together in, Leyland and Daff got together in 87. We moved headquarters uh, to Tame in 1987. Uh, and things initially went pretty well. But as many of you will remember, the recession of the early 90s hit and hit very hard. Uh, in 1989 led into recession with a bite in 1990 and 91. And DAF, as well as the cost of the companies together, DAF was investing huge amounts of money at the time. It had just finished investing in the 95 range, but it was investing in what became the 85, 75, 65 range at the same time. And now also having to invest in a brand new van range to replace... Uh, the uh, Freight Rover van, which was well past its sell-by date. And there was a joint project ultimately with, I believe it was Daewoo, uh, to put together a new van range. That van range, by the way, did eventually see the light of day and is now called the Renault Master. All oh, right, because obviously they did. They had the, the, the latter vans, you had like the LDV Convoy and what was the other one? Pilot. The, the Pilot. Pilot Those were the, the two. narrow 200, yeah. They were narrow, but they were still, you could still clearly see that that had the old original Freight Rover oh, Sherpa yes. DNA in it. Oh, yes. And they made them up to 2004. Indeed. Amazingly. And, <laughs> and you know, that, but that, again, was the result. So, as I say, early 90s recession, huge amounts of cash flowing out of DAF to fund these projects and bringing together the new company. As a result, DAF went bust. Pure and simple, DAF went bust. That included Leyland DAF operations here in the UK, but the company went bust. It was rescued briefly by the Dutch government and uh, it uh, operated in administration for around about three to four years, if I remember right. The significant thing was here in the UK, there was a huge amount of operator goodwill towards the Leyland DAF brand. The Leyland side, because it was a traditional British make and a lot of operators still in those days wanted to buy British. The DAF brand, because DAF were exceptionally uh, well regarded and respected for after-sales support, part support, breakdown support and everything. Uh, even today, if you say, what's the greatest asset that DAF has? It's their dealer network and the after-sales support that the brand delivers. Um, and that operator goodwill saw DAF through those initial difficult first few years after going bust. And it was, uh, forgive me, I can't remember the exact year, but I was, believe it was around about 95 that Packard stepped in. Was it as late and as that? I, forgive me, I can't remember the year. It was mid-90s anyway that uh, Packard stepped in and bought DAF effectively from the Dutch government. And obviously that included all the Leyland DAF operations as well. Yeah, well it it would have been um, the perfect package for Packard at the time because it obviously like dipped their toe in the water with Foden and were doing kind of low volume specialist stuff. Um, yeah. But they were that, that that then gave them a volume operation, uh, which well, was kind of ready made for them. I hate to say there is another element to the story on that one as well because, uh, as you know, Packard, as you rightly say, were already owners of Foden. When uh, DAF were talking to uh, Leyland Trucks, 
uh, in 85, 86 in terms of merging their operations. The only other suitor at that time was Packard. Packard had talks with Leyland Trucks at the time. But the British government effectively said, if you take Leyland Trucks, you've got to take Freight Rover vans with it. Packard were not prepared to take Freight Rover trucks, sorry, Freight Rover vans. Yeah, they They're not a van company. No, they don't have light commercials. They, they no. don't want vans. So effectively, that's one of the reasons that DAF got the deal. The um, legend has it that Mr. Piggott, uh, who effectively owns uh, Packard, uh, the Piggott family said, well, okay, we'll bide our time. We'll have them both in one day. And you know what? Ten years later, they were spot on right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, Packard came in, bought the uh, remnants of DAF and uh, Leyland DAF from, effectively, the Dutch government in the mid-1990s and have invested enormously. And we now have DAF as, by far and ahead, the leading brand, truck sales brand, here in the UK. Now, I was going to ask, moving on later, you had some involvement with Foden as well, latterly, because there, there would have been huge changes at Foden. They'd gone from um, having their own works at um, Elworth and building their own building their own fiberglass cab trucks to moving towards having the um, the CF cab with the Alpha, um, and you were around for the kind of the yeah, establishment this of the steel cabbed Foden, which. A lot of people say that that truck was the best one that Foden ever built because you had the steel DAF cab and obviously they had the running gear, the Foden running gear underneath it as well. Yeah. Um, my involvement with that was a bit arm's length. I actually uh, decided the time had come to get out of DAF about a year before it went bust. So I left DAF in 1991 and became an industry consultant, which is what I'm still doing today all those years after. And uh, uh, one of the things that I was asked uh, to get involved with, ironically by DAF themselves, because they were by then the sister brand of Foden, um, in the mid-late 1990s, uh, was to uh, help market this new, what is now CF cab, DAF cabbed Foden range, the steel cab, as you rightly say. Again... You know, the, the old Foden names, um, you know, you had the 4,000 with the big cab, the 3,000 with the medium cab, and the 2,000 range with the very na narrow cab Foden models. The 3,000 was the one that was effectively going to be replaced in the main. The 4,000 was a very low product. The big cab is already a very low volume product for Foden anyway. So the question is, how is this new CF DAF steel cabbed Foden range going to be pitched into the market. And I was asked to, uh, as a consultant, to come up with a, um, a product platform for this new range, in particular to come up with a name for it. Well, I can now be honest uh, as to how that came about. Um, I had got together with the guy who was marketing director of Foden uh, one afternoon, a chap called Gary Rowlands. He explained to me that this new product range was going to have the DAF steel cab, and that Foden were going to focus on building the ideal truck for every particular application, for every particular function, so the best mixer on the road, the best distribution truck for its application on the road, the best um, tipper, whatever. So uh, 
the, really the focus with this new range was going to be producing a truck that was right for its application. So he wanted a name, he wanted a product platform. I went away and in typical marketing consultant uh, way, had to think about it. It's a bit of a long-term creative think tank process, as they say. But effectively, Gary rang me up and said, come on and tell me how you're getting on about two weeks later. Well, I hadn't really got the answer, but I thought, well, I can bullshit my way through. So I went up for a meeting with Gary, and uh, I was in reception, and uh, I picked up a copy of, uh, I think it was Transport Engineer, I'm afraid to say, in those days. And um, I uh, was idly looking through it as I was waiting in reception, and there was an advert in there from a company who'd used the strap line, form follows function. And in a marketing creative way, I started thinking, form follows function. Okay, well, what Foden are launching here is the vehicle that's ideal for its function. So form follows function. How about that? So I got in the meeting and... Uh, uh, Gary sat me down and said, so what do you think, of, you know, where are you? And I said, well, I've come up, I've had a really long think about it, Gary, and it's, it's going really well. I, I've been thinking about it, and I've been thinking this is the right product for every individual application, no matter how bizarre it might be. And when you talk about a truck's application, you're talking about its function. How about launching the advanced function concept? And he said, oh, I like that. That's brilliant. I thought about it three minutes before, by the way. Uh, the advanced function concept. He said, this is brilliant. And as I'm talking, I'm thinking. And I said, yeah. And instead of writing it on the truck, we could come up with a symbol that emphasises what it is or, you know, signifies what that truck is. I said, for example, I didn't do Greek at school, but, you know, I knew what it was about. How about using the old alpha sign? You know, the sort of alpha Greek sign? Yeah, that's like, um... It's like a, a figure of eight on its side. And I said, what about you? He said, that's brilliant. He said, the alpha, alpha sign, I love it. He said, in fact, why don't we call it the alpha range, the Foden alpha range? And I said, yeah, love this. I could see my, my invoice increasing by the minute. <laughs> anyway, he went flying off, saw his secretary, got his secretary that minute to get onto the patent office. Patent office? Maybe I'm talking the wrong thing, but had the name registered. He said, there's never been an alpha uh, range in the truck world. And that's how the name came about. That's fascinating insight, that. Yeah, that's the honest-to-God truth. So it was all done in the last minute, in reception, while uh, I was waiting for this guy having a coffee. Um, and it shows you bizarre things happen. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot... You'd find, it, going back to the 3300 for just a second, uh, you'll find there's a lot of hauliers who solely regret having gotten rid of their last one or haven't kept one back because they're so hard to find in preservation. Alphas. Uh, no, 3300s. Oh, right. A big alphas. Oh, no, no. There's hundreds of alphas. Nobody, there's people still working them everywhere. Yeah, they, refuse to, they refuse to get rid of them because they're stubbornly holding on to their Fodens, you know. <laughs> but, but no, 3300s, I do agree. It, it, it often saddens me that how few of them there are still in existence, let alone working. Um, I saw one up in Scotland uh, that had been converted to a 6x2 wrecker. Uh, about 18 months ago and it was still in super condition mm -hmm. you know absolutely super condition the guy was looking after it yeah they get um, so um so that's why there was just so much um interest in the, the, the restored daft when they brought it out because nobody had seen one for 
for a long years, time. Unless you'd happen to catch one at a show. But the interesting thing, I think, was some of the comments made by your colleagues saying, you know, there in front of them was this wonderful, iconic 3300 DAF and everybody talks in, you know, sort of glowing terms about this wonderful old product that used to be around and so on until they got in and drove it. And I see, I, I had no problems driving that truck. I, I, I would quite happily go out and do a bit of work in it. Yeah, Not but a bit of work, but you wouldn't want to fly up and down to Aosta and back every day or the Middle East and back every day in a truck like that anymore. Well, not, not doing that, no, but the... The thing about the truck was that you could get in it today and if it was the only thing that was spare in the yard, you could go out and do all your deliveries in it. You could trunk it down the road. Indeed. If you needed to, you would do a night out in it and that was my kind of point that made it so remarkable. And the fact was that that one happened to be fitted with a 16-speed ZF synchro box, so most people could drive it. It wasn't like, you know, if it had a, you could get them with twin splitters in them. Um, but no, you couldn't, not as ATI. Not as ATI, no. no. If it had an ATI badge on the front, it had to be the 16-speed ZF. Right. End of. Okay, as a, a final subject to cover. Um, obviously, there's um, a lot of um, hearsay and conjecture about Foden and their ultimate demise and maybe ifs, buts and maybes about what, would it, what could have happened with the company. Could it still have been about today? And there's a famous myth that uh, surrounds Foden and that they were going to get the XF cab from DAF and fit a big Cummins or Caterpillar engine underneath the floor, 600-odd horsepower, which would have been huge at the time to go and take on Volvo and Scania with their V8 and their FH16, and it was going to be called the Foden Falcon. Now, somebody did a Photoshop on it a few years ago um, with the, the orange kind of paint scheme, and there's kind of rumours going about that there may have uh, been even been one built for um, not demonstration purposes, um, evaluation purposes to see how it would do. Um, but you've got some, in, you've got, you were around there at the time. W was this truck ever really going to get off the ground? Well, what I, what I can tell you is several things. First and foremost, um, there are people who know far more about this subject than I do. Uh, my colleague Phil Moon, who's at DAF to today, uh, he certainly would be far more um, uh, close, far closer to this than I would have been. I, as a politician would say, I don't deal in myths. What I can, however, tell you is that uh, I was asked as a consultant, having done the Alpha project that we mentioned just now, I was asked as a consultant to go and talk to a number of operators about their 4000 series Foden, i.e. the old big cab Foden, and whether they would consider a new big cab Foden, potentially with the DAF XF, what is today the XF, it was then the 95 cab above it. The reality is the operators that I spoke to, and I did probably about 60 operator interviews uh, to uh, gauge the reaction of the market, uh, I can tell you that the, the feeling from the market and operators was pretty negative. It was pretty largely, don't bother. Uh, I put the results in and I didn't get involved with the project again. But if Foden are the manufacturer that I know them to have been and uh, the people there, I have huge respect for those who were working with Foden at the time, 
I think inevitably, in terms of a big product, a big cab product, they simply saw that the volumes, the potential volumes from doing that simply weren't great enough. The concept of putting a Cummins engine at 600 horsepower, well, I think you're well into myth theories there because, you know, no, that's not. The reality is truck manufacturing, you're in business, whatever business it is in this world today, to make money. And if you can't make money from it, don't do it. And it's all very well producing wonderful one-offs and, and huge uh, high horsepower engines. If nobody buys them, there's no point in doing them in the first place. And the reality is that the feedback from the market was a new big cabbed Foden simply wouldn't generate enough volume to make the project viable. Simple as that. Now, I'm slightly putting two together and making four there. Um, I would hope that as I say, Phil Moon would agree with me on that one. I'm sure he would. The reality is it was never going to be a runner, Doogie. The reality is that the Alpha ultimately, I believe, went up to around about 500 horsepower anyway. 450, 450. with the Caterpillar engine, yeah. But, but it could have gone yeah, well, there, higher than that. There was Hardstaff. Sure. Hardstaff did do the C13-engined one, which they built as a prototype, um, which was around 500 horsepower. But um, that truck's been restored today. Um, and it's in and preservation. And as a, a one-off, so, yeah, wonderful. Uh, mm -hmm. but they had, a, they had a go at it, so there were things and kind of happening with that. But the kind of dramatic version of it was that Foden had built some immensely powerful truck, and then like uh, the, like they were like on their own in one side of the office building, and Daff were in the other, and Daff got wind of it, and were like, "Oh no, you're not doing that. That's going that's no, going to blow our I, XF out the water." No, I, d I, I don't think I don't think <laughs> I don't think that's the case. You know when you when you get two brands alongside each other, you have a number of ways of going forward. If you look at what uh, Volkswagen Group have done with their car brands, they've kept them entirely separate and have enjoyed the volume fruits of doing so. Volvo and Renault here in the UK, exactly the same. Volvo and Renault have kept the brands pretty much separate and, and have enjoyed the fruits of doing so. Leyland Daff, back in the late 80s, took a different approach. And with one or two hiccups along the way, that in itself has borne fruits. You could say that going, you know, if you were to do it again, you should actually keep Leyland and Daff as separate brands. I mean, you know, if we'd have known that, thought it 30 years ago, maybe we'd have done that. But the reality is we didn't, and history has now proven that decision to be the right one. You know, with the support of Packard and the ownership of Packard and the guidance of Packard, DAF is now the number one brand here in the UK and is hugely successful on mainland Europe as well. But the reality of Foden is, much as the brand is iconic, much as the brand is well loved by many, many people, much as the Alpha was a relative success for Foden, even the Alpha couldn't achieve the sales volumes that were required to make the brand an ongoing viable commercial proposition sorry that's all right it's yeah, reality. Not for me um i'm not personally um that upset about it it's a it's a real shame but it's not i can understand it might be the wrong phrase i can understand the logical reasons behind it you know yeah um, I, I think it's I very you can't have an a brand which is only based in one island country 
uh, or two maybe because they went to New Zealand as well. It's not Which not with the not with the not with the investment that you've got to have in modern technology and development costs. It was just coming to the end of being able to do things yeah, as an exactly. assembler. Exactly. I think one of the most telling comments was made by a guy called Art van der Pat, who was chairman of DAF in the early 1980s. He took over from the old Van Dorner brothers when they retired, and he was before Corban, who was the last chairman of the independent DAF prior to it going bust. Cor uh, Art van der Pat said many, many years ago in the early 80s that at that time there were around about 14 individual mainstream brands in Europe, truck brands in Europe, by 20 years' time, he said there will be four. And we went, oh, what? No, that'd be ridiculous, you know, this one. Do you know what? He was pretty much right. There are only five companies who own brands in the European truck manufacturing industry today, and there are only seven mainstream brands as it is. So if you think about it, there's Iveco, as a mainstream, uh, as, as, yep. as a uh, manufacturer, as Packard, as Volvo, as Mercedes-Benz, and there is Trayton. Well, VW sort of group. Call it, it VW, yeah. call it Trayton, whatever you mm -hmm. will. They're the only five brands that make trucks these days. And under that five, you have Iveco, mm -hmm. you have Volvo, you have Renault, you have DAF, you have Scania, MAN, and uh, Mercedes-Benz. And those are the only seven brands that are left. Mainstream brands. Yes, there is Fuso, of course, but it's part of Mercedes-Benz. Yes, there is, you know, Dennis, but hardly a mainstream truck brand, I would suggest. No, they're not. There's Sino truck coming in from Ireland. Sino truck coming in from Ireland. You've had Hino along the way. You've had, And there are all kinds of other ones, and there's some very exciting ones that are girding their loins... Uh, you know, to come to Europe. Certainly the new Ford uh, truck built out in Turkey. I've seen it. I've sat in it. I, I've, I've forgive me, you guys have driven it. I've driven not driven it. it. No, that well, was before... I, the, the launch was before I started in trucking drivers. So yeah, and it was International Truck of the Year for 2019. It, it's an interesting product. So there's much more on the way. But at the moment, there really still only is those seven mainstream brands. And that's it, because it's about economics. Well, that's been really fascinating. Thanks for coming in today, Peter. I think you've given us some really um, good insights into what was, what was going on between DAF, Leyland, and then ultimately Foden at the time as well. Yeah, there's, I mean, the world has moved on a long way. And, and, you know, nobody makes a bad truck these days. You know, I have lots of opinions about all kinds of products that are out there today. But there is no doubt everybody makes a good truck. Nobody makes a bad truck. And the whole world of uh, alternative fuels, um, in terms of gas, in terms of electric, in terms of all the other fuel sources that uh, are now coming to the fore at the moment, that is going to change our world. Drivers, operators, all of us, it's going to change our world. Yeah, I think that's a subject for another podcast at another time, definitely. We've uh, got plenty of subject matter to be going on with going forward. So I'd like to say uh, thank you very much, Peter. Pleasure. And thank I you for doing. Yep, I'm sure I'll get you back on again soon to talk about um, some other topics, including those alternative fuels. Great stuff. Thank Thanks, you. Steve, You're listening to Talk and Driver, the Truck Podcast.